when I took over, I had one of the most best-in-class procurement professional teams, but it was too much procurement, too much price-oriented. And in this journey, we needed to think outside of the price box. We need to think cost. We need to think value. All these things, mostly in a company like DuPont that is focused on innovation, on growth. This is Smarter Sourcing, a show dedicated to helping sourcing and procurement leaders elevate their influence and get their seat at the table. Our mission is to empower listeners to reimagine their roles and make that happen. In each episode, we'll speak with an innovative leader to distill best practices, learn from their mistakes, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work. Here's your host, executive producer for Smarter Sourcing, John Pavia. Now let's jump right into today's episode. Welcome everyone to this installment of Smarter Sourcing. My name is John Pavia, and today I'm honored to be here and be able to spend the next few minutes with Miguel Gonzalez, the Chief Procurement Officer of DuPont Corporation. Miguel, thank you so much for joining us. No, oh, thank you for having me. There's so much to talk about and I could actually do it instead of a 30 minute interview, probably do a three hour interview with you. But I know we don't have that much time. Before we even get into DuPont, I think our viewers would love to know how does a kid from Spain make his way over and become the chief procurement officer of a company that is over 200 years old and really goes back to the, the beginnings of this country. No, absolutely. So originally from Spain, from Barcelona, I enrolled in the Navy when I was 16 years old. So kind of like a early start coming from a very low income family. So that helps understand a little bit my background. So that was my career. Got married, had a kid, realized Navy family incompatible. I quit. Then I joined General Electric in their plastics business. And that was kind of at the beginning of my professional career. So General Electric, eight years. Nalco Chemical is part of Ecolab 10. That was here in the US. We came for a two years project. It has been almost 22 years. So this is home now. I work for Kraft, Kraft Foods, and then DuPont. So as you can see, it's a mix of industrial, chemical, food. And within DuPont, it's a little bit of everything. Most of my career has been in logistics, supply chain, procurement. And when I joined DuPont, I came as the director of logistics procurement. Then we merged with Dow. And after the split between Dow and DuPont, the previous CPO retired. And then I became the CPO for DuPont. And that had been, time flies, had been already six years. Crazy. I want to talk about your team and the way it's structured because you've been on a journey since you've become the chief procurement officer, going from a decentralized model to a centralized model. But before we move away from the topic of world events and whatnot and how it impacts DuPont, I thought what was really interesting that I read about was how you do crisis management modeling for things that haven't happened yet. So one of those might be what would happen if China decided to invade Taiwan. And I also thought to myself, I wonder if Miguel's naval background somehow plays into this because I know in the military, you do a lot of war gaming for things that hopefully never happen. Can speak to that a little bit. Sure. And interesting enough, obviously the last two, three years have changed everything. So before COVID, we all have contingency plans. And most of us, our contingency plans were natural disasters. You know, what if a hurricane hits the Gulf of Mexico? And we do all those things and then COVID happened. And COVID, the pandemic, the supply chain issues, the Everything crashed, the Suez Canal, and that we learned a major lesson. It's a, 
we have to think differently. We need to think broader. We need to think end-to-end -end supply chain. These are not things you can do independently. So since then, we keep doing all, all these what-if scenarios. I think that wake-up call was the war in Ukraine. Nobody was expecting that to happen. And, you know, you make a reference. I'm from Europe. I was in the Navy in the 80s. Yes, I mean, Russia was, you know, they were the Soviet Union. They were supposed to be the bad guys. That was not supposed to happen ever again. That's why in Europe, we never expected to have war in Europe, European soil. And here we are, three years. So that makes you really reconsider the what if. And it's not only geopolitical or, you know, potential military situations. It's about everything else. Because if the Middle East escalates, here we go, another major issue. But like right now, we are even looking at elections. 2024 is going to be a big year for elections, not only in the U.S., but in many other countries. So what happens if, look at polarization in many countries, including Europe. So you need to consider all these things, strikes, the power of unions, both in Europe and in the U.S., has changed from the last 20 years to the last two, three. What happened in Germany last week with the, you know, the farmers. So it's coming to a point where it's almost impossible to build scenarios, contingency plans to mitigate everything. So it's more about the what if, how can we prepare? And the big theme for all of us has been this uh, supply chain resilience. How do you build redundancy, contingency plans? And it's not just inventory. So for us in procurement, big thing is having more than one approved supplier. And not only because sometimes we have two, three approved suppliers, but they're in the same country, in the same region. So if something were to happen, it doesn't fix the problem. So we're doing a lot of looking at our tier one, tier two exposure, geographic exposures, and so on. I know one of the things that you wanted to bring to the department, to the procurement function at DuPont was really allowing the people that work within procurement, especially coming out of the pandemic, to be concerned about their health, their mental health, and that work, you know, life balance. And so you spoke about what you're doing. And it's become a big focus and a big priority for you, not just for yourself, but for everybody that works with you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, every company talks about people. Oh, people is the most important asset. But you, you have to walk the world. Because literally, if your team crashes and a lot of people burn out in the last two, three years, mostly in supply chain, mental illness, I mean, it's impacting a, a lot of us. So you really need to take care of your team. And I guess it's one of those that you need to lead by example, make sure that people have work-life balance. We at DuPont, like many companies, we have been implementing more rules around do not email on weekends. Unless it's, it's critical. You know, the whole discussions around we catch up. I, I'm, you know, one of the guys, I catch up on Saturdays, Sundays, you know, because during the week, it's a, you know, I don't have time to do all my emails and PowerPoints and everything. But when I send an email, I may think about, it's not urgent, but, you know, they will see it on Monday. But when people receive it on Saturday, now they're thinking about that email all weekend. So it's try to avoid it and it's, it's critical, provide the work-life balance, see what can you do. And at the end, many times, it's just reaching out, talking to people, making sure they have an opportunity to, to vent. Because many times that's what it takes is just venting. But yes, absolutely, you have to take care of your team. And part of this is, from what I read, is really having your procurement people and impress upon them where you've said, take off your procurement hat 
and think like a business person, not like a procurement person, not just about the price. And I thought it was a very interesting comment. There are two things. And thank you for bringing this up because the last four or five years, the journey that we have been embarking in, in DuPont in procurement is this transformation journey. And it starts with the mindset. So we have our strategic pillars. One of them is becoming a strategic partner with our internal stakeholders and, you know, our businesses and our clients, also with our suppliers. How do you build these long-term strategic relationships? Most of my team don't sit in the procurement building anymore. Now they move and they're sitting with the businesses, like with the IT, IT procurement with the CIO, the raw materials teams with the businesses and the product managers. So they build that relationship. And then it's a, for us, when we talk about our priorities, we have three and then everything else. Priority number one is compliance. Compliance, ethics, core values. That's the most important thing. Never take a shortcut. We need to meet, you know, core values. Priority number two is security of supply, mostly in this risky environment we're living in the last few years. And then priority number three is create value. And obviously cost, price is part of that, but we need to think innovation, sustainability, regulation, everything else that creates value. How do we support growth besides everything else? So it's a, you know, the three priorities we're dealing with right now. I want to go to the priority that you put on going from a decentralized department to a central, but sticking with what you just were talking about, one of the things you all have also read was your strategy and your views on identifying and acquiring and grooming talent with a focus on procurement talent. Given what everything we've gone through in the last four or five years, what you've experienced now at DuPont, how's that impacted you and what you're looking for when you're looking to bring someone onto your team or even promote somebody within your team? So thank you, John. That's a great question because traditionally, you know, you bring procurement, you groom procurement, you're looking for those hard procurement skills. And I can tell you when I took over, I probably has, I had one of the most best-in-class procurement professional teams, but it was too much procurement, too much price-oriented. And in this journey, we needed to think outside of the price box. We need to think cost. We need to think value. All the things mostly in a company like DuPont that is focused on innovation, on growth. So yes, price is important, but other things are as or even more important than price. So what we learn is as we start bringing talent from other functions, we started bringing people from supply chain, people from the commercial teams, bring those people. You can teach them procurement, but it's come and teach me and my team supply chain end-to-end, partnerships, commercial, PNL. You know, that has been another major transformation. We move away from reporting year-over-year savings and cost avoidance to report PNL net impact. That's what the business cares about. That's what the CFO cares about, not savings and cost avoidance. That came in those discussions with the commercial teams, with the BU president, with the CFOs about how do we align. So it's a Yes, you need the procurement skills, but also you need to bring other skills, other experience. And it comes down to many times it's about the soft skills more than the hard skills and the expertise. You can teach procurement, but you need people that are open to learn, good learnings, uh, communication, leadership. One of the soft skills that we realized we were really weak in procurement and makes a major difference, and commercial teams can really teach you that, is storytelling. 
it's not about putting these big Excel files in PowerPoint. I mean, like what you get lost. It's about <laughs> the stories, not the what, it's the how. That's great. So let's go back to when you come in as church procurement officer and you said to yourself, okay, this group is way too spread out and we need to go from a more decentralized model to a more centralized model. Easy to say, I can't imagine it was easy to do at a place like DuPont. And I need to make a clarification on that, John. So the previous CPO already did the first phase of centralizing. So moving from an administrative support function into a centralized strategic. When I took over, the next step was to be more embedded and integrated with the businesses. So yes, we are still centralized. We were spend under management is like 99% of our global spend. So everything is going through procurement, but now it's about we leverage, we are centralized, but we are part of the business. We need to be really engaged with our stakeholders instead of being a silo, an island by ourselves and not fully understanding what our stakeholders need. So you move your procurement people out to, so they're sitting with their stakeholders and that's had a major impact. But they still report to me. So what I say is when some of my leaders, like they report to the BU president or the CIO, what we say is we have two solid lines. It's not dotted that solid. Now I pay their salary, they report to the CPO, but they also report to the BU president and they sit with them and they're part of the leadership teams. So the analogy I make many times is you have a mother and a father. They both care about you. They're both going to teach you something different. One is going to be more caring. The other could be different, but they both are going to give you different learnings and they both have different expectations. But that doesn't mean one is stronger or better or bigger than the other. You have to do. And the key is mother and father, they need to be aligned and they need to have discussions outside of the room to have, you know, the right level of education and, you know, expectations for, for your kids. So after this interview, I want you to come and, and have a talk and you can be my counselor between me and my wife and how important <laughs> it's us to be on the same page with our kids. In one of the interviews that you gave recently, you talked about sometimes not wanting to look at your emails in the morning when you woke up because you're never sure what you were going to find. And given the size of DuPont, you operate all over the world, you know, $50 billion market cap company, Fortune 100 company. This is a company that gets impacted by things that you do wake up in the morning, you turn on the news and you see something that's happened in the world. So tell us, I'm interested, you know, when you go to bed at night, what's the last thing you, you think about from a business standpoint? And when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you look for? Good. So obviously... Being a global company, global teams, it's not that 24 seven, but close by. So, you know, going to bed typically is check the calendar for next day, anything change, checking email just to see if, if something is going on, mostly in Asia as they wake up. But then early morning, it depends. So right now with probably for good or bad reasons, the last two, three years has been crazy on all of us. And it took a toll in our, and in my, but most of us, our mental, and our physical health. So for the last year, year and a half, it's unless I have an early call, and most days I have early calls with Asia and Europe, now I'm hitting the gym. It really helps because then you're coming to the office with much more energy and then address everything. As you say, it's checking email as soon as you wake up in case there is another crisis. I mean, it's like on a daily basis and you're making that reference and make the joke many times. And afraid of opening the email every morning. What now? I mean, look now the Red Sea and all the craziness. And then during the day, it's crazy. I'm having, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 meetings every day. Some of them hybrid, 
Some of them in the office, we have this hybrid model, but most of my meetings is one-on-ones, talking with people at all levels from, you know, leadership team, BU presidents, my peers, and then my team. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the phone. So I want to talk a little bit, you're a company that you got a lot of eyeballs on you. This is not a low profile company, it's a high profile company. And ESG is becoming a bigger issue every day, especially for Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies like yours. How has that impacted your role and what's your overall philosophy on ESG compliance, your ESG score, et cetera? Really great questions. If I look back four or five years ago, there were not even an ESG acronym. I mean, it was like, yeah, there was supplier diversity. There was a little bit of sustainability. Europe was bigger in the U.S., not as much. I only have half FTE supporting, you know, that role. Today, I have four people full-time, and we cannot keep up with everything happening in terms of sustainability, regulatory, you name it, everything is big. But I think probably the most important thing is these people, the team, they are the control tower. They are the ones that need to identify, they need to understand, they need to translate, interpret all the needs, talk to our sustainability teams, talk to, you know, our internal stakeholders. But at the end, it's critical that ESG is part of our day jobs for everybody in the organization. It's not only four or five people responsibility. Every buyer has to have ESG as part of their category management playbooks. As they negotiate, as they talk to suppliers, as they identify new opportunities, it's not just about price or value. It's about innovation. It's about sustainability, greener molecules. Can we recycle? Can we reduce circularity? Scope three. So that has been the major mindset the last three, four years, how ESG becomes integral part of our category management playbooks. When you think about the business, you know, your raw materials, that's one thing, but other than people, the other things, what I would consider on the indirect procurement side that support the business, what are the critical categories for you and for DuPont that if there's anything you're really keep center on your radar screen to make sure that your you know, branches, your divisions, your distribution centers are, are always supplied with? So interesting depends on the point of view for us, because our critical priority is security of supply, obviously raw materials, is top priority. Also, logistics has become really critical because we have seen in the last two, three years what's happened with demand and supply and containers and logistics capacity. So logistics became very important. Then we talk about packaging contract manufacturing falls under that. Then when you think about more cost, energy became a big thing. So three, four years ago, energy was up and down, crude oil, natural gas, and then suddenly Ukraine and natural gas in Europe went through the roof from the 20 euros to the 200, 250 euros, and then shutdowns and costs and the ripple, the wall ripple effect. So energy became another top priority, mostly from a cost point of view. And then in the world of indirect, it's mostly cost. When you think about like corporate services, consultants, HR, marketing, IT, the chances that something goes really wrong and you shut down a plan or a customer are not as big as it may happen with logistics or raw material. But from a cost point of view, you're talking for us, our overall global indirect and logistics or indirect cost is almost half of our total cost. So it's almost the same way as our raw materials spend. So it's very important. And 
there is a tendency in procurement organizations to focus on raw materials, direct materials, without realizing that in indirect, if you don't take care of that area, you can leak a lot of money. Yeah, as we're talking, I was thinking back and, uh, you know, working with some clients during and at the end of the pandemic when all those container ships were backed up outside of the Port of Los Angeles. And I can imagine when you're referring to waking up in the morning and looking at the news, looking at your emails, I got to imagine looking at those container ships sitting out there waiting and waiting and waiting to come into port. DuPont's a company that I'm sure that was those were the news stories that you hated to wake up to. I mean, right now, literally this week, we have around 2,000 containers in the water right now that they are being diverted from the Suez Canal going from uh, Cape Hope. That's adding, you know, somewhere around 10, 12, maybe up to 15 days of transit time. With the inventory levels we have, not DuPont, all of us, we have been de-stocking for the last several months. It's part of this, you know, demand management exercise we all have done for the last few months. We don't have too much safety stock. Our customers don't have too much safety stock. So adding 10, 12 days to transit time for something that you didn't plan for. Now we need to go through every single one of those orders and say, are we going to be okay? Do we need to reschedule? Do we need to give a heads up to our customers? Is this a critical shipment that we're going to need to air freight? So the amount of work that right now we are doing together with our supply chain teams, every single shipment working with our carriers is crazy. And it want to look like, you know, two, three weeks ago, we didn't see that coming. So let's finish with uh, what's next as you think about the journey that you've been on the changes you wanted to make, your, the three priorities, where are you in that journey and, and what's around the corner in 2024 and, and beyond? So obviously the short term is uh, survive. I mean, 2024 is going to be a challenge for everybody. I mean, are we going into recession? Just no, the economy, the geopolitical, all those words, how is that going to impact us? The demand is still being weaker than everybody was planning. China recovery, is it happening? So it's going to be a little bit, how do we manage? mostly from a cost control point of view, but also you need to make sure you do not sacrifice the long term. How do you keep building your talent, your organization, the processes, the foundation for when the demand comes back, you're ready to support you know, the company and the growth that is coming. So how do you balance all that without you know, sacrificing the long term is a challenge. Everything that happened in the last couple of years, has it changed the seat at the table that you have, meaning, you know, the chief procurement officer in some companies doesn't have a seat at the table. And I've heard from many over, especially over the last four years because of the pandemic, that's changed a lot because it was a wake-up call on the importance of redundancy, et cetera, et cetera. Has that changed for you at all? Has the seat become a bigger seat or a more important seat? Absolutely. So the reference is three years ago, I will be in front of the CEO 30 minutes, maybe one hour per year for our annual business reviews. Then the pandemic hit, all the things. Then we went into this. First, it was quarterly with the CFO and investor relations, then monthly. And now we have every month with BU president, CFO, CEO, to the point where now even I'm every week, every Monday for five, 10 minutes on the leadership team call to provide an update of what's happening. So the level of visibility that my team and myself, we got with the leadership team, amazing. And the perception reality, but also perception that we are not just an administrative support function. I think now it has been much more clear about the strategic value that procurement brings 
to the organization. So now I'll go a little lighter and I'll make a comment that as you were talking, I was thinking about an interesting interview that I saw recently where um, Tom Brady was talking to Peyton Manning and he was talking about when he got his first chance, the quarterback in front of him got hurt and he got his chance on the field. And he was like, you gotta, because I tell a lot of younger guys, you gotta make the most of that opportunity. And uh, I think about CPOs during the pandemic and how they, a lot of them made the most out of the opportunity. And so it's interesting to hear your personal story of how that's changed how your roles changed at, at DuPont or, or not changed, but been enhanced. So let me finish with this. You and I were talking right before we uh, sort of went on air and talking about unintended consequences from the pandemic. And I shared with you that on my mom's side, my art family's lineage goes back to Spain. And from the pandemic, who would have thought, and certainly not me, and I got to admit, I didn't watch a lot of things or any, I don't know if I watched anything that I had to watch, look at subtitles. But who would have thought there was such great television and content that's coming out of Spain? And I, I don't know why, but I think I've watched like six or seven series that on Netflix that are produced in Spain, the biggest one being Money Heist, which the story behind that was incredible. And it was that something that you watched as well? Or did you happen to take a look at a lot of the Spanish programming coming out during the pandemic? No, absolutely. I mean, obviously, we watch a lot of TV during the pandemic. We were already watching movies, Spanish movies, but then Money Heist came along. Obviously, we watch it. It was addictive. But then I guess it's the algorithm. The more Spanish movies or series you watch in Netflix, keeps recommending more. So we have watched, I mean, like last week we were watching Berlin. It's like a sequel. I'm watching Berlin. Uh, <laughs> love it too. So it, we had a good history of good movies and good directors like Almodovar and Berlanga. But now it's a, they put us in the map. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't remember all of them right now, but I've read a couple of articles that there was high quality production already coming out of Spain, but it took the pandemic to introduce it and expose it to the rest of the world. And it worked. And the story behind Money Heist is hilarious because it's a little show that got canceled and then got picked up by uh, Netflix International. And it became the biggest, at one point, it was the biggest show on the planet. Unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. So this was fun. I really appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, I hope to talk to you again in, in a year and hear uh, where uh, you are on, on that journey still. No, thank you. Thank you, John, for having me. And just, uh, you know, last comment here, it's, uh, I'm always open to expand my network. Any peers or supply chain procurement professionals that want to connect, you know, they can go to my LinkedIn profile. And I love to hear from, you know, any other stories out there and share. That's great. Thanks so much. And we'll be talking soon. Thank you, John. To all of our viewers, thank you. Thank you for listening to Smarter Sourcing. For more episodes, visit www.smartersourcing.com or search Smarter Sourcing on your podcast platform of choice.